Welcome. You're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander. With me, Reverend Terry Menifee Gow. And me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. As always, be aware, there are spoilers ahead. Okay, we're back. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) We are back, yes. So this is uh, the last episode we did, Call of the Stones, and kind of talked about the, well, the exceptionalism and utilitarianism, different ways of calling (laughs) it. Um, We got into Aristotle, guys. We did, we did. Um, Watch out. So some feedback. We continue to get feedback from listeners. We always are wanting to hear from you. And so if you're ever sort of struck by something that we say or something that you then reflect on or you've always thought and you just never had a space to share, then hey, this is the place to do it, right? Awesome. One of the ones I wanted to share with you today, Terry, was from a a listener (laughs) named Julia. And she was responding around our question from last season, actually, about romance books. Oh, yeah. And which romance book she'd read and kind of what was her her experience in that. And so she says that the first romance books that she ever read were Jane Eyre and Mrs. Mike, which I don't know Mrs. Mike. Do you know that? I don't know Mrs. Mike either, okay. but I'm going to have to make a We're note. We're going to have to look that up. <laughs> but she read those when she was 13. Jane wow. Eyre, yeah. I don't know that I would have had, well, not open access to, to Jane Eyre at that age. So, wow. Anyway, but she also grew up reading a lot of classic fairy tales. that She was obsessed with them. But this will be familiar to the two of us. Also read a lot of biographies from single female missionaries and nuns who dedicated their lives to serving <laughs> God and others. Yeah. Yay, Lottie Moon. <laughs> Lottie Moon. Um, Elizabeth Elliot was the one that I heard oh, a yeah. lot about. Ugh. She says, think, I think reading those books helped me to have high expectations for the men that she dated. So the question that we asked was, how do these romance novels affect your perceptions of what relationships should be like? And so that, that was kind of her response on that one, I think. She says she didn't settle. And unlike many of the, her other evangelical peers, she waited until she got married at the age of 27, which was overall a fairly good decision, she thought. I assume she meant waited till she got married, meaning having sex. That sounds about right. I think yeah. so, yeah. I know some people who got married just so that they could have sex, which, you know, yeah. yeah. And how did that work out for them? <laughs> well... <laughs> I haven't really kept in touch with them, so I can't really say, but some of them I know, not so well. Yeah. But she says, basically, if my life didn't feel epic like the literature that I read, I didn't have the time for it. So her expectations of life was that it needed to be epic because of these stories that she was reading, which I thought was really interesting. Well, you know, and it's funny, it kind of, that kind of backs up to what we were saying last week. Yeah. That push in the 60s and 70s to kind of make you feel like you needed to be the hero of everybody's story. Yeah, that exceptionalism idea and kind of the messiah complex as well, right? That, you know, we have arrived. Yes. The world is now saved. And you're a failure if you haven't, if, if you know, you're just calculating numbers in a booth somewhere. You're Absolutely. suddenly a failure. Yeah. Gosh, if your relationship doesn't meet every high standard, yeah. then suddenly you're a failure. Yeah. And that's not necessarily true. There's actually some utilitarianism. Absolutely. Absolutely. People need to drive taxis. People need yes. to 
clean houses you know like that's just kind (laughs) of that's the way life works right she talks about in the context of the romance side of things that her high expectations helped her to avoid a lot of bad boyfriends and potentially bad marriages but that once she was married she thinks her the expectations were somewhat hurtful to the marriage which you know is something we've also encountered in some of the responses from people she says i constantly was disappointed that he wasn't as romantic as as i had dreamed about as a teenager reading jane eyre and as far as outlander she feels like it's been really healing for her that sex was somehow a dirty word in evangelical circles when she grew up, but that reading the book, it's helped her to feel more grounded after sex, that it's a good and a natural thing, which yeah. we're really, yeah. that's yeah. really great, which is kind of the, you know, one of the reasons why we love this story so much too. Yeah. She says, um, I remember after reading the wedding scene from the first book, I bounced on my husband and we had a beautiful week of reconnecting sexually in a way we've never had before. <laughs> I don't think you're the only one, Julia. I think there have been others who have had that experience, too. And she said she was worried that she might start having too many expectations of him again, and so she needed to be really careful as she read through the series. But what has been really helpful for her is that he has started watching the TV series with her, and he really likes it. And he also listens to our podcasts with her as well. So hello, Chris. Hey, Chris. Yeah, anyway, just kind of wanted to to acknowledge that. And, and she also says that they're foster parents to some special needs kids, and the amount of stress and chaos that they've had to deal with over the last three years has kind of brought them to their knees in a few ways and so this experience of Outlander for her has been that they've related to Jamie and Claire because they're in a war zone fighting for survival and they've had to learn how to trust each other and because that was all they had and so Outlander has been really useful for them and a turning point in their marriage and being able to find strength in the story which is yeah again I'm so humbled yeah. Yeah. Jamie and Claire kind of foster everybody, don't they? Yeah. There are some special needs folks in there as well. So there that's are. a yeah. that's yeah, that's in that's incredible. <clears throat> Thank you so much for that feedback. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's so rich. I mean, I know it makes a difference for me as a reader, but I continue to be surprised by how open and honest people have been in their own responses about things. And there's a lot of responses that we get that we don't share just because of permissions and that kind of thing. But right. But right. Julia Right. Julia did give us permission to, to share this. And so thank, thank you, you, Julia. Yeah, thanks a lot. This episode, we, <laughs> we've spent so much time because, you know, hey, that's just kind of the natural thing. But we spent so much time on Jamie and Claire throughout this, this time. But as season four in the TV show has done, the story is starting to open up and we're starting to have other characters that we spend some time with and Roger and Bree are part of that. And so this episode, we're talking about Roger's call and vocation and probably a bit of his interior life too, if we're kind of go with the with the format that we've done with Jamie and Claire thus far. But at the moment, we're just going to mostly focus on his vocation and calling, but his interior life is going to be a natural part of that conversation too. So. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's kind of important for us to be talking about Roger. He mm. is the only one in this series. And, and, and just FYI, as we talk about this, we're going to be way talking later in the book. So if you're only yeah, following the television series, there are a lot of spoilers mm-hmm. here that you will run across in the book series because 
honestly, in the television series, you're really just getting started with Roger. Yeah. It gets much, much deeper with Roger and Bree as the as the story goes on. Mm-hmm. But Roger is the only one, and this is this this is where the spoilers begin. Roger's <laughs> the <laughs> Roger's the only one of this of the core group that has a call, a clerical call, yeah. which means he is being called to ministry. Mm. So as you know, since what we are doing is looking for the soul of Outlander, and we're doing this in a theological way, this kind of seems like a natural. We really need to be talking about Roger. <laughs> we totally <laughs> do. Yeah, I mean, not that not that being called to be a, a church minister, or a priest, cleric, you know, whatever word we want to use, pastor. Not that that's a higher calling than what mm-hmm. any of the other people in the story experience, but. It would be remiss of us to not talk, you know, about the right. most obvious call <laughs> in the language that is that yeah. is used. Not to mention the fact that, hey, you know, like I've I have said several times that other than we and Roger is my my favorite sub character, and so going through and preparing for this episode, I was just just falling in love with him just over oh, and over gosh. and over again. Just like God, oh, he's just such a good guy, you know. Like um, he really is. Yeah, so and I he always he always gets the bad end of the stick, he and does. I feel poor Roger. Yeah, so so as we move along, and this is other spoilers, there will be yeah. a lot of realization of what happens to Roger as mm. this goes. Roger is is incredibly changed in each book, mm. and yes. it's the same with Ian. They each book there's something there's something there that that is uh, taken away and then given to Roger. Yeah. His calling is is one of those things. So. Yeah. And I think that's probably, to be honest, why I like those two characters. It's like, you know, being asked to choose your favorite children in some ways. But, <laughs> I, I mean, I really love Laura John Gray too, but we don't see the personal evolution with him in the same way that we see with, with Ian and with Roger. So I think that's why probably I connect with Ian and Roger more. You don't you just don't yeah. see the same kind of evolution. It's almost as if he's well, I don't know. Tell me what you think. It it's almost as if he kind of remains the same throughout the entire yeah. entire series. series. He's so, he is yeah. the honorable gentleman. Well, Lord John is also not always there. He shows up right. here and there. He does kind of pop in and pop out. Yeah. And we do get a little bit more with about him with the Lord John series. Yeah. But his interior life was not that rich or deep, to be yeah. honest with you. And that's yeah. why I, I read a few of the books in the Lord John series, and then I just kind of put them down because I didn't feel like it was moving the character along. Yeah. Nor was it moving the story along for me yeah. um, with the character. However, yeah. in The Scottish Prisoner, it did. He does yeah. change a good bit there. And, and we get a lot more of his interior character there that, yeah. is, that is richer and, and is deeper. I mean, when he experiences the things he experiences in The Scottish Prisoner, I found that he was, well, he was more charming than ever. But he, he's kind of that unruffled, nonplussed guy who shows yeah. up and then helps you fix things. Yeah. And, and oh, by the way, we'll never, ever stop loving Jamie. So that's... Yeah. That that's his appeal to me. I love Lord John, and I'm in love with him. I do but too. Yeah. Roger Mack and Ian have got such strong, strong interior lives, and they make such strong sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Lord John doesn't really make serious sacrifices that that they do. I mean, he marries mm-hmm. Claire, and and that's a bit of a sacrifice, but not really. He does it to to protect Jamie's family. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I don't. I, I guess I, 
yeah, I'm just trying to question kind of, so why do I say that so readily? And yeah, I think, I yeah, think, I think, that's, I think you're right though. I think yeah. you're right. He, he really doesn't change much as a case. He's kind of, he's the steady guy. <laughs> he's steady. Yeah. Okay. So related to that then. I would say that, you know, we do get introspection from kind of all the characters in the later books. We do get introspection from, obviously, from Jamie and Claire and from Bree and from Wee Ian. But for me, I think Rogers is, and this explains probably a little bit more why, why I love him so much. Rogers is richer and it seems to be more self-aware and articulate and honest and he and humble and he's willing to talk about like where he fucks up and where you know like where he's just he's like you know willing to kick himself in the ass about things yeah and and a willingness to kind of probe larger questions of life that the other characters don't seem to do as much in their introspection we might get some of it in conversation with other people but you get a you get an internal conversation with Roger that is seems to be much richer and much deeper than some of the other characters. I think it's almost on the level of Claire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whenever we hear from Claire, mm-hmm. it's always in first person. Mm-hmm. Anybody else in the series, if we get it from their perspective, is in third person. Yeah. But Roger, even being in third person, is almost as deep as Claire's introspection, yeah. Yeah. I think. It feels like it's pretty much first person, even though it's... No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree with that. He's always looking for details. He's always looking for some hook that he can that he can uh, I don't know connect with. He's I, always I searching mess- for meaning. Yes. I think. Yeah. And I think that's why I love him so much. In his suffering, in mm-hmm. what he can do, in even the daily stuff of life, he is. Yeah. You're right. And I, I think that it's something that Jamie and Bree just do not reach for. I, no. I think that they they take things much more at face value mm-hmm. than than either Claire or, or Roger do. And especially Roger. I think by the time Roger meets Claire, she's been through enough, right? Yeah. So yeah. that she's she's been able to kind of step back and go... I don't need to go down that rabbit hole. I've been there before. So there's a lot to the 20 years or 30 mm. years of difference in their age. Yeah. There's a maturity there that she has that Roger still has not reached the mm. point where he can accept certain amounts of mystery. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So in Drums of Autumn, we get this from Roger. He's, again, one of his introspection points, you know, and he says, yeah, he'd been lonely, knew bloody well what it would felt like to have no one in the world who to whom you belong or, or you to them. But surely there was a reason why they'd reached out to each other, he and Brianna. Claire knew too, he thought suddenly. She'd been orphaned, lost her uncle. Of course she'd been married then. But she'd been separated from her husband during the war. Yes, she knew a lot about being alone. It was a leap of faith to throw one's heart across a gulf and trust another to catch it. His heart was still in flight across the void with no certainty of landing, but still in flight. There seemed no possibility of true human warmth, no joining of heart or mind, no more than the animal consolation of a body to cling to in the dark. Was there really any more for a man than this? Mm-hmm. And that's when he's on the on the boat in Drums mm-hmm. of Autumn, uh, following Bree, and this this quintessential Roger is is this really 
it? Is this what life is, is about? This, Loneliness yes. and this casting of your heart across a gulf and trusting someone else to catch it. Um, well, we, we don't get that from Claire. No, this, that's, that's no. what I'm thinking. I think he does this even more really than Claire does. Claire is quite matter of fact about things too sometimes. She is, but she also has just like pain and pain and pain of Frank or Jamie, Jamie or Frank, rather than the aloneness, there seems to be a plethora of people who want to bed her and to love her and to marry her. (laughs) There seems to be so many. choice. (laughs) She gets to choose from, and so she chooses the king of men, and rightly so. Claire gets into this, I think, this level of questioning when Mm. it comes to the stones and why she's there and whether she's doing something wrong by being married to two men across 200 mm. years. She mm-hmm. she really wallows in that quite a bit. Mm. And she wallows quite a bit in, you know, the whole I can't let Frank die yeah. by, you know, killing Blackjack Randall. So I, I, I think it's just the, you know, their particular issue. And I think for Roger, you know, Roger, it's definitely what what is what is his purpose? I mean, yeah. his, his parents die when he's very, very young. They do, and, yeah. yeah. And and while he's still really attached to to Reverend Wakefield, he's you know he is aware that he's an orphan, that he is cast out alone, and that he does have that in common. Which I think, in later, you know, and we'll talk about this, but later on, when he becomes you know the son-in-law and as part of the Fraser's Ridge, why that matters so much to him, you know. Yeah. And we've talked about home and belonging already, anyway, but. But this whole idea of he now has family and he's he is there, you know, by the side of the chief and has a role to play. And and that matters, especially for someone who hasn't had that. Right. Well, Um, and he makes that choice, too. Right. hmm. Roger does come back at the end of Drums Mm -hmm. of Autumn. Mm -hmm. This is actually what happens in the book. He Mm -hmm. goes away for many, many months after he comes back to Brie and finds out that she's pregnant and possibly by Stephen Bonnet. But he comes back and he lays blood claim to her. Mm -hmm. He lays blood claim to the child. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, he makes an active choice Mm -hmm. to be a part of this family. Yeah, a blood oath. A blood oath. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, you know, I've been doing some rereading and stuff, and that was some of what Claire has has said is that she goes, you really just don't know. Mm -hmm. You, You don't know all you can do is act. You have mm-hmm. no idea why things are happening. Mm-hmm. You have no idea why or if God has a purpose here. All you can do is make a choice and go with it. Mm-hmm. And he does. And that's I think, leads to this calling that he ultimately has. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the other thing about his character that comes out as we talk about his vocation and call is that Roger is quintessentially a romantic. Oh, and it's dreamy. Yeah. <laughs> And not romantic just in the sense of love for Brie, but his empathy, his feeling. He is a feeler through and through. If you're a Myers-Briggs person, he is an an F F that's off the scale, right? (laughs) Yep. And he married a T. Oh, yeah. And he married a T. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He married a thinker. But yes, Roger's a feeler. He believes Claire. He felt her truth and he knew it to be true even before he had. I'm, I keep thinking kind of the, of the doubting Thomas sort of idea of, uh, you know, yeah. blessed is, is he who has seen and believed. But the one who hasn't seen and still believes is Roger yeah. had, didn't see and yet he still knew that what Claire yeah. had said was true. And in, in Drums of Autumn, I think he reflects for Claire, too, that 
this witness of enduring love that she'd she'd had for Jamie and that love was strong enough to withstand separation and hardship is strong enough to outstand outlast time, he says. And so he follows Bree through the stones and in DOA or Drums of Autumn. He talks about safety wasn't what, what what mattered, love was. And that's what a feeler will say, right? Yeah. Is if he'd cared for safety, he wouldn't have crossed that desperate void to begin with. That's at the end of chapter 51 in Drums of Autumn. But later on, he asks, obligation, love? Because she says, I don't want you to be obligated to me. I don't, you know, I don't want you to marry me basically out of obligation. And he's like, obligation, love? How in the hell do you not have love without obligation? It's one of my favorite lines in the whole series. Yeah, yeah. We should make a new t-shirt and put that. How the hell do you have love without obligation as our t-shirt? Yes, because so, you know, a feeler can also be somebody whose feelings were never really validated. Yeah. Or, or who were hurt, obviously Reverend Wakefield did an amazing job raising mm. Roger and validating mm. his feelings and yeah. validating the fact that he should be reaching out with his natural abilities with empathy, with yeah. his natural skills towards understanding the older women in the church and the parish, which is why they love him so, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, why Fiona loves him so, why, mm. why he feels the loss of Reverend Wakefield so deeply. Mm. It, it is a very romantic notion to just throw mm-hmm. all your caution to the wind and follow mm-hmm. love. I mean it based in the 18th century understanding of romance in the sense that nature is right. We've mm-hmm. nurtured it out of people. Mm-hmm. And so he's following his heart, which is mm-hmm. more better than the brain, or at least it's more highly valued in romance. Um, in romance art, I think mm-hmm. is the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. So you also have romance art in visual art and mm-hmm. paintings when well, you see those sweeping vistas of how the natural land is better than what people are doing to it you see that coming about in the early to mid 19th century due to industrialization it's kind of the rebound from industrialization it's the pushback yeah. and so mm-hmm. roger is that he you know he comes to see Ah, living history, and it's yeah. going to be great, and he's going to find Bree, <laughs> and he's going to have the best time because he knows all the things because he's a historian. <laughs> and I think that Diana, I love that she writes characters who think that they're following, and, and, and they're following their calling, right? Mm-hmm. And they all learn something by failure. Yeah. Jamie follows his... He follows his leadership call into Culloden and just fails tremendously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Culloden fails tremendously, but he is a man of honor, and he follows his honor into that. Claire follows her honor back through the stone and to mm-hmm. save Bree, and it's a her marriage with Frank is not great. Roger follows Bree, and just ends up in some of the worst predicaments <laughs> that yeah. could possibly happen. Yeah, not not that I think you can really kind of quantify it, but Roger, I was going to say, I think Roger is probably a more tragic figure yes. than probably anyone else in the story. But yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I did, Jamie is a quite tragic figure in a lot of ways, too. But, but there are so many parallels, I think, between Roger and Jamie that 
I, I, they're just really interesting for me, but we can talk about that as a, a completely separate episode, I think. <laughs> but you were talking about earlier, kind of, okay, so Roger wanting to know why and, and the questions that he asks about time travel. Yeah. So, yeah, so Claire says you never really know, but you have to act anyway, right? Right. But once Roger goes through the stones, Roger never not acts. I mean, there's that part where he doesn't act in the sense that he doesn't tell Bree what he's found out but Bree finds out anyway and you know so there is a non-acting side on that he wanted to tell Bree and and then he didn't and he chooses not to act for several months by just kind of roaming around trying to process everything that's happened to (laughs) him after he's rescued from the Mohawks I mean he 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 does absolutely sit out for a while Mm. and rightfully so (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but otherwise he never really hesitates in the sense of he he gets he gets right to it like he acts on, it's like he learned his lesson maybe yeah so always his conscience prevails sometimes obviously to his detriment but he evolves as a character in that way of learning learning the lessons and trusting his gut and going with what he feels is the right thing to do yeah i i think he really does trust his feelings and again mm-hmm. kudos to reverend wakefield for teaching him that that's okay um not every feeler out there not every f out there has had that experience Mm -hmm. and i think that that's a that was an amazing gift for reverend wakefield to have given his adopted Mm son okay so the things that roger does as far as calling and vocation in the series so first and foremost we meet him as a historian as a history teacher do you think he was called to that I I think Roger's call is very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the calling to history was for the time. Mm -hmm. We we don't get the background of why he does this or why he Mm -hmm. is into this. We do know that his adopted father, Reverend Wakefield, is a minister. And as a Presbyterian minister, he also happens to have this really strong love of history and has kept Mm -hmm. an amazing library of history. And so Roger has had to deal with all his little bits and pieces of history all of his life. Yeah, he's lived in like a national archive since he was a baby. Right. And he's Scottish. And Mm -hmm. and Reverend Wakefield was all about the whole Scottish history thing. So I think Mm -hmm. it was a natural fit for Roger to start with being a history professor. It's kind of hard to go and get your PhD in history and not have a calling there. Yeah. You know, because, you know, getting your PhD is not a thing. No. But, you know, Frank did it. And Frank was quite clear that he wasn't called necessarily. He he wasn't called to anything, though. Mm. Frank did Mm. not feel a call to anything. He just chose this because, well, he was good at it. Mm -hmm. So the, the question I think there is, if you've never experienced this thing called a call, you've never had this mystical experience where the sky opens and there's an epiphany <laughs> and we are, I, I, I'm laughing at myself because today is, as we're recording oh, this, right. it's it January epiphany. 6th and it's yep. epiphany. And you've never had this epiphany that you, you've just kind of always gone towards something that seems good at the moment or seems mm-hmm. like it's a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't I, I don't know. I have a hard time saying that everybody has to have a call. Let's yeah, put I do it that too. way. Because I don't think they all do. No, I don't. I think some people are content 
to you know play around in history for a while or yep. continue doing that for the rest of their lives and they yep. enjoy other things too and they're perfectly content that way and that's fine yep. and i think maybe that's where roger might be but i don't know mm. we don't get that information no we, we don't, don't get that information from him we get it from frank mm-hmm. and and we get later that roger experiences a call but mm-hmm. diana has not written that roger experienced a call to history yeah I was in as I was doing the homework for this or you know the research and pulling things together I had a little giggle so in A Breath of Snow and Ashes where Jamie is thinking about the coming war and what needs to be done and sort of reflects on Roger as a historian and Jamie is saying to himself he said I'd rather bury or you know he sorry He'd rather bury the old privy pit or castrate pigs than go and ask Roger Mack what he knew about the Indians and the revolutions, or Kent, about (laughs) Indians and the revolutions. He found it mildly gruesome to discuss the future with his son-in-law and tried never to do it. He he talks about Claire, you know, telling stories of the fantastic, and he always found those interesting because he learned more about Claire. And, you know, Bree tells stories of, you know, home and machinery and wild stories of men walking on the moon, but it was no threat to his peace of mind. (laughs) But that Roger, though, had a cold-blooded way of talking that reminded him to an uncomfortable degree of the works of the historians he had read and had therefore a sense of concrete doom about them. This talking to Roger Mack made it seem all too likely that this, that, or some other frightful happenstance was not only going to indeed happen, but would most likely have direct and personal consequences. So one of the most disagreeable things about talking to Roger Mack was that Jamie was sure that he was always being told the truth. I thought that encapsulates Roger in such a great way. You know, it, yeah. it's so funny, though. You know, like, okay, so we were talking about him being a feeler, but that he's so cold-blooded about, well, this is history. This, You know, this is what's going to happen, kind of without <laughs> as objectively as possible, right? Because that's what historians are, are taught to do, though history is never objective. and so Never. Never. Um, Somebody always feels the brunt of it. Yeah, and it's always written from one particular perspective as opposed to another. But yeah, I just, I thought that was really funny as I was going through that going. So Jamie recognizes Roger as a historian and it's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's funny is, you know, so I've I've been looking because I'm I've been doing my research on time travel because we we're gonna have a time travel episode, yay, yay! at some point. And <laughs> I I was relooking through Dragonfly and Amber, and mm. it's it's before Preston Pans, and Jamie's like, mm-hmm. all right. Claire, tell me again what you remember. Yeah, yeah. Run me through tell this me one again. more time. Yeah. Walk me through this one more time. And yep. Claire's like, it's it's a side note in history. I'm trying to remember this little book I read when I was a kid with the pictures. Yeah. And, and whether or not, but I, I'm pretty sure that the Scottish won at Preston Pants. By mm-hmm. I don't know by how many. I don't know any of the other. So Jamie, at least when on the on the road to Culloden is desperately trying to find yeah, what he would have given for roger in that particular moment hey <laughs> and of course diana writes a historian for jamie and he doesn't want to talk to him yeah i know isn't that funny <laughs> that's that's great he'd rather bury a privy pit or castrate pigs castrate than talk, pigs to and talk to roger about history, about history. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness yeah but i think Ultimately, so Roger's call is to Brianna. Like we talk about 
you know, yeah. later on we'll talk about his call to ministry and that kind of stuff. But even later he will say when when Brianna asks him, I can't, or says basically, I can't complete, compete with God. And he's like, you always come first. And so his call to Brianna, I think, is the prevailing call throughout the right. series. Right, and, and, and we mentioned this in the last episode. There's only two mm-hmm. people that we know, or that Diana has written, that come through the stones only to follow mm-hmm. another person. Yeah. Only to find another person. The others come through to change history or for some other reason. Claire comes through the stones specifically the second time for Jamie. And then Roger goes through the stones specifically to find Brie. It's their love for them that they've led mm-hmm. through the stones. Brie goes through the stones. She loves her mother. She wants to change history, though. There's yeah. an ulterior motive there as well. Yeah. So I think for Roger, the trip through the stones is incredibly romantic he has cast a lot mm-hmm. that he mm-hmm. wasn't expecting it's fortunate for him that Bree accepts his call yeah or yeah. roger would be lost forever i i don't yeah. know that he would know what to do if it weren't for her because his call changes quite a bit in it the does. story but yeah. the only thing that really kind of is the solid thread through it is is Bree and her steadfastness uh-huh. with him yeah yeah the observation that he has in Drums of Autumn when he goes to Mass with her, when they're still in Scotland, in contemporary Scotland, about his prayer of wasn't to let me have her as he might have expected. It was a more humble and more acceptable, he hoped. Let me be worthy of her. Let me love her rightly. Let me take care of her. And so I, I thought that was a really telling, that's Roger's call. And that's Roger's call to Bree is, is to do that to right. to take care of Brie, to be worthy of Brie, to to love her rightly. Mm, but also yeah. later on, I think his call just to family in general. I mean, yes, Brie is first and foremost, but but his call to Jimmy and to then Jamie and Claire and to the you know, to the tribe basically. Right. At Fraser's right. Ridge and becomes right. his other his, his clan. Other this is his clan. Yeah. 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 There was also this other call, this call to music that he's had as well yeah and he he loses this opportunity and we'll we'll talk about this obviously later (laughs) i i don't know if the music and the history kind of go together he sings Mm. quite a bit he does and you know fortunately richard rankin has a beautiful voice (laughs) and and can play guitar and sings um on the show and it's Mm. a it's a lovely representation of that but he he has this capacity to entertain and yeah. to tell story and to embrace history mm-hmm. through song mm-hmm. so he carries that to the 18th century as well they they, they catch him singing Beatles songs <laughs> which I think is fantastic that he sings he continues to sing once he's there and entertain in 18th century America mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. with the songs that he learned it just so happens he happens to know the songs yeah. From yeah. from the era. Yeah. But the music I think in some ways had helped history become alive for him. Like it was yeah. a living tradition through the music and so that serves him well in the time travel aspect, I think. We talked about earlier just uh, just a minute ago about his blood oath for claiming Jemmy yeah. basically. Yeah. And then as part of just joining 
joining the clan, basically. Then there's this beautiful, beautiful sort of initiation or, or baptism, as you know, we could say, of oaths with Roger coming into the family and anointing Jamie with his blood, claiming him as his own, and then and then Jamie in fiery cross, then you know, calls him to his side in the gathering, and I. I <sighs> The relationship between Claire and Roger, I think, is really, really strong and really beautiful. Like, I mean, you were saying kind of there just a minute ago that Claire and Roger are the only ones who came through the stones just to follow a person. I think they recognize that in each other. I think they see, they see that. They understand that in each other in some way. They both question why the stones exist and why they are able to go through the stones. Mm -hmm. It takes Claire several books and 20-some-odd years to understand, or not to understand, to give up understanding, to give up the opportunity for that understanding. They continually question why God has done this to them. Yeah. Why, why God, who is supposed to be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, has done this to them, the mm-hmm. timeless God, which mm-hmm. I don't know that that timeless God really exists. But no, it's a very Greek idea of God. It's yep. a very Greek idea of God. And I think they both really get lost in that argument, mm. get lost in that issue of why did I fall through the stones? Why do these stones exist? Mm-hmm. What if I'm changing history? What if I'm changing the future? And what consequences does that have? Right. What are the consequences mm. of my actions if all I'm called to do is act, right? Yeah. Claire does not hesitate when somebody mm-hmm. is hurt in front of her. She acts. She goes yeah. for it. Roger yeah. does not hesitate when way. somebody he loves is in danger. He goes for it. He acts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they have that in common and recognize that in each other. Galus the Mautauk Five and Bree, they do not question their capacity to go through the stones and what the stones are for. I think Bree goes through the stones because the stones are just another tool in her kit to mm-hmm. help her parents, her help her mother and her help her father. And Galus, it's, it's we're going to save Scotland, we're going to save Scotland. And so with the Mautauk Five, it's we're going to save the Cherokee Nation, we're going to save mm-hmm. the Cherokee Nation. And so... I, I I I think that the others don't question it. Yeah. I, I I think that Roger and Claire are capable of having these deep conversations mm-hmm. that Roger and Claire can't have with anybody else. Yeah. I, exactly. I think that's part of it. I think too. I, I, so there's an observation in Fiery Cross that Claire makes about Roger making an oath to a child that might not be his, like Frank did. So I think she yeah. recognizes that too. I mean, obviously we find out that Jimmy is his, but at the time we didn't. For several books, we didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's it, it's questioned for quite some time, right? But then I, I was struck also in Fiery Cross with Roger's bedtime prayers, where he kind of sounds a bit like the Waltons, where he sort of bids goodnight in his mind to, to this list of family and friends. And yeah. so, again, that that Roger's call to his clan, his call to his family, I thought was re- just really beautiful. Yeah. But obviously, you know, the, the, the most telling one is his call to ministry. And, and interestingly enough, called mm-hmm. to being specifically a Presbyterian minister. A Presbyterian minister. He could have converted to Catholicism. That might have made things simpler for in some ways for some people. But he didn't. He was still... He still felt called to 
Presbyterian ministry as opposed to yeah. some other tradition. I thought I, I, it also made me giggle when Jamie was like, you're not going to become a Quaker, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, they're just outright. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was in relation to him not joining up as a soldier. But yeah, it just kind of was like, oh, right. Yeah, he had, he had <laughs> other options if he wanted to. But no, no, he stuck with Presbyterianism. It was his, you know, it's his faith. It's it what is. he grew yeah. up with. I, you know, I find it interesting how... In the first in the first books, it's really important that Claire is also a Catholic. Yeah, it's really important yeah. for for them to get married that she is also a Catholic. Once they come yeah. to the United States, or once they it's not United States. Once they come to the colonies, it, it's it's kind of a hey, whoever's here is great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we don't have to convert. Whoever is here is is the right people. We're gonna just and do the so, best we can with what we got. Yeah. Well, and so that's part of frontierism, right? Yeah. This is part of what happens in the colonies as mm-hmm. people are moving into areas that do not readily have the leader of their faith tradition. Mm-hmm. If they don't readily have a Catholic priest anywhere nearby, they're not going to get married unless they have somebody who can perform the act. And yeah. so this is why Roger and Bree have to wait until the mm-hmm. gathering when a priest is available so mm-hmm. that they can get married. And they go beyond their handfast date to get mm-hmm. married. So they, you know, there's still a question in the air, actually, whether or not they actually will get married. But they they wait for that priest. But Roger becomes the Presbyterian minister in mm-hmm. Fraser's Ridge. So he then add, just becomes the one person everybody goes to, whether yeah. they're Lutheran or Catholic or, you know, Methodist. I don't think there were any Methodists. Or Quaker. It didn't mm-hmm. matter. They come to Roger. Yeah. They show yeah. up and they listen to his sermons. Yeah. And it, and it's funny. So his call to ministry, I think, starts in a kind of, in in a not a formal way, in the sense of, oh, I think I've called to be a minister. And then he starts doing this. It's people start recognizing that there's something in him that that is minister-like. And there's this assumption that because his father was a priest or a minister, then, then there's kind of, you're in the family trade, right? So right, I think, right. you know, some people were like, oh, well, the, you know, you're close enough, or you might know how this works because you're, because your dad did it too, you know? Right. It runs in the blood, right? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went to a Presbyterian seminary Yeah. and, and I, I led a program on vocational calling for high school students. Yeah. And this is very much a Presbyterian call. Right. That the community rec- mm. recognizes skills and talents and abilities mm. in one of mm-hmm. their community. Mm-hmm. And they lift that person up mm-hmm. towards a call to ministry to help lead them. Mm-hmm. It's very, very strongly Presbyterian. It's, it's not the Baptist, I'm out on a mountainside and suddenly God <laughs> opens the skies and touches my head and says, Which is You're the it. tradition I grew up in. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, it's not yeah. that at all. In a Presbyterian tradition, even if you have a mountaintop experience like that, it's vital mm-hmm. that the, and, 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 and it, your ordination will not happen without it. Yeah. That the community supports, mm-hmm. recognizes, and ordains that call. Yeah. And he's called, I, I mean, through throughout this process, the community does. They they yes. recognize something in him. He becomes a chaplain, whether basically he likes it or not. 
even you know in Jumps of Autumn we see him you know when he's on the ship with Gloriana and and you know the care that he's showing to to Morag and 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 Jemmy her baby but also the priest Alexandra when he's with the Mohawk right. he's being asked to by Alexandra to pray for for him will you pray yeah. for me when they come take me away perhaps what attracts people to Roger is that feeling is that empathetic sort of way that he responds to people there is something in him that people recognize going he is he cares he's going to pay attention to to my need or listen or something like that there is that about him and I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily an openness no but there are people in this world that you just you gravitate toward mm-hmm. and they become kind of a spiritual friend or a spiritual mm-hmm. leader or a spiritual mm-hmm. something or other and mm-hmm. I, I i don't know that it's necessarily an openness but there's a different energy about them and i don't know how else yeah. to put that and and roger has that energy yeah yeah, I think yeah, I think Diana's done a great job of of being able to describe that without saying it in words. Basically, yeah, that there's yeah. these so many times where someone comes to him, asks him to perform a ministerial task in some way. So whether it's pray for me, baptize, whatever it might be, and he's like, no, no, I'm not a minister, I can't do this. And they're like, eh, you'll do, you know. <laughs> so like you know, when he's with the Mohawk and and Alexandra confesses to him you know he's like will you be my confessor and yeah. will you pray with me and i think that's the beginning i think that that's is really I think the, that's the, kind of the first obvious time when roger sort of is called upon well and what a what a, tr- a tremendous honor in mm. the midst of something horrible mm. but but b what a, a tremendous responsibility and he mm. took it seriously that's the he thing did. That's um, I, it, yeah. I think that's it too. He can be empathetic, but he could also have just told him, eh, "Just go away." And no, you know, and just said no to it. But he took it seriously. He didn't, you right. know, he didn't fob him off or 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 say no. I can't him. do that. I'll just hold your hand. That yeah. wasn't what the guy asked for. He's about yeah. to walk into. He's about to be burned at the stake. He yeah. he actually yeah. takes his request seriously. <clears throat> and as a Presbyterian, yeah. of course, he's going to believe that it's okay for him to take the confession because of, you know, the priesthood yeah. of all believers. So it's, he, he luckily is raised in a tradition in which he, A, takes it seriously, mm-hmm. and B, believes that he's able to take that on. Mm-hmm. I've got to ask this question then. Yeah. Since okay. we've talked about this energy, and you and I have both been in ministry in a way, some way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. that happened to you? Mm-hmm. where you've been the one singled out by people. You've been the one that they've said, here, you, you come do this, even though you've had no formal training in doing any of these things. Uh, yes. Yes, I would say that. I, Whether or not it's more... <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Those who know me can <laughs> call in and <laughs> tell us what they think. <laughs> I tend to kind of chalk that up to kind of more my matter-of-fact leadership sort of stuff you know like for, can we can you do this because you're you just don't seem to be okay with standing in front of people or being you know like the those kind of the pastoral care aspect of it that roger has yes at times but usually only after someone finds out that i was in seminary or that i have had an experience of ministry then they do but i don't know that they necessarily i don't know 
maybe they do. I don't, it's hard for me to think objectively about that, I guess, to be honest. How about in high, high school or college when you were in your youth people group? People always you talked special? to me and sort of told me things that I don't think yeah. they necessarily tell other people. Oh, right. God, I hope not. You know? <laughs> right, um, right. So, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I think, I think it's those experiences that, that kind of make us, because it's happened to me too. And so I think those mm-hmm. experiences make you wonder what else is out there so that you can continue those experiences. Mm-hmm. Because they are be, meaningful. They, they are, are extremely s- meaningful. I remember, you know, I, 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 so I worked in a coffee shop in Richmond while I was in seminary. And I have regular customers who came in every morning. I did usually the early morning shift. And so I saw the same folk every morning about the same time. Knew their, you know. And just would make a point to talk to them and kind of, how's your day? What's going on? You know, and like know them by name, pay attention, follow up. And the power that that has struck me so much. I became, a couple of them says, I would never go to church in a million years, but you're my minister. You know, I'm, oh, yeah. and, and in a, I'm coming in for coffee every day situation, you know, like, but the sacredness of, and, and so when we talk about calling, I think that was a calling. I think that, that was a, a yeah. being, being a barista at that particular moment in time with those people at that, you know, that was sacred work. Well, people long for community, you know, yeah. and I've said this a million times, the greatest need is to belong, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the way to do that is through relationship, right? So that is absolutely what you were doing is creating mm-hmm. community in a place that needed it. Yeah. And, and this is what Roger does. I mean, so yeah. Jamie is the leader of the clan mm-hmm. and you can have a leader without community. Yeah, you I've, can. I've been in many a church <laughs> leader <laughs> without a community. And yeah. Roger creates that opportunity for people of, A, differing faith traditions, mm. including Ian's indigenous spirituality and mm-hmm. the Celtic spirituality that is floating around there as well. And mm. he's, he's able to kind of put all that together by those moments where he checks in with people. Yeah. 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 In some ways, I, I mean, other than just, you know, he does go the role of minister, you know, in a more formal sense. But Roger's the chaplain. Yeah. In both the informal and, and formal sense of the word, I think, um, the sense of people, people go and talk to him about things that they wouldn't talk to Jamie about or they wouldn't talk to other people about. But I do think it's interesting. So as we're talking about kind of his call and, and, and how he sort of moves into that. He starts off by saying, no, no, I'm not a minister, and then does it. And then eventually he just stops saying, I'm not a minister. He just, people ask him, will you baptize this child? Will you conduct this funeral? Will you, and, you know, fill in the blank. And he's like, right, yeah, okay. Even though he might have an internal sort of conversation or, well, you don't, you know I'm not really. And they're like, eh, you'll do. You know, like we've already kind of said that. But, But you see the progression of Roger going from no no I'm not to yeah okay which I think is is fascinating to be honest well Um, okay so let me be devil's advocate for a second okay we were talking about maybe his being a history professor wasn't necessarily you know the the end all be all call was it a call was it not a call yeah and so Roger comes back through history and Mm -hmm. he's in the history that he teaches yeah and and he sucks at it He's, he's not good yeah. At this at all. He he hurts himself, he gets hurt over and over again, he trusts mm. the wrong people, he 
He's and not we, a soldier. He, you no. Know, all he, those, he, you know, manly, manly, manly things. That no, are, he can't fell trees. He can't plow. Mm-hmm. He, he sucks at, he's mm-hmm. a good historian, but he mm-hmm. sucks at actually living, living in the history. Yeah. And so he finally finds something that he can do, mm-hmm. a way he can participate in this community. He mm-hmm. finds this way to belong. Yeah. Otherwise, he, he kind of sticks out as being an able-bodied male who doesn't know how to be an able-bodied male in the yeah. 18th century. Yeah. So, um, you know, devil's advocate here. Mm. He finds something that he's pretty good at, that people accept him for, that helps him to belong, and people won't look at him like he's a freeloader. Mm. You know, is, is this part of the call? And, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with going the path of least resistance if you can mm. participate positively in a community. If yep. you have got the skills and abilities to be an accountant and you like it, and this mm. is a great way to support your community, then by yep. all means, geez, do it because you've been given these gifts and you talents mm-hmm. and you enjoy it. So mm. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if that's, you know, as people see him in that position and as he finds acceptance as part mm-hmm. of the community in that position, that that's part of this calling that's part I, of I think what that's doing. I think that's it I think that is true because it's not as if he has that mountaintop experience where he no. feels God speaks to him and says I want you to be a minister or whatever that might be it, it is this slow evolution where the community calls him in where there's a need and he's the best person to fill it yeah scripturally if we're Mm -hmm. looking at the jewish and the christian scriptures it's not the call of paul at all where you get knocked off your horse yeah yeah you get knocked off your horse Mm -hmm. and you know i i see it more of almost like the call of of david even though david is anointed by samuel earlier on he still goes back and takes care of the sheep and it's a fairly gradual call Mm-hmm. People start seeing him as the leader. People start naming him as leader. And, and he then starts to fit into the role that they're calling him to do. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe some of the judges that are out there. It's the same. It's it's a, you, they, they just act the part. And mm. suddenly they are the part. Yeah. yeah. And suddenly they are the part. Yeah. I'm just thinking. <laughs> so I would love to know what research maybe diana did into the life of a minister because it just cr- <laughs> the the scene of hiram crombie's mother-in-law a funeral and then yes. when the snake and then later when the snakes get released in the it while when he's given his first sermon but are like the funniest and most honest scenes i think for a minister <laughs> to read so i you know us as ministers and having had that experience his thought about his preparation the difficulty of having his family and the congregation and the familiar faces and how it's easier to do it if they're all strangers as opposed to people you don't know exactly and, yeah, and like dealing with disruption and things not going as planned and then having to wing it. It just, all of that was just so, I mean, granted, I've not had anybody wake up in a funeral and I've not had snakes. Um, but <laughs> the reality of that situation of kind of just having to, to fly by the seat of your pants and you, you know, you have a plan, but you're not quite sure and you're just doing the best you can. I, I don't know. I guess everybody has to do the best they can, but right. I think she captured kind of ministerial life so well. 
so so well yeah yeah Okay, so in, in some of your research, mm. you talk a little bit about how Roger conducts himself as a minister. Yeah. So once you take on that mantle, yeah. <laughs> you, you yeah. have to make sure that you are not putting yourself in situations that could be misconstrued. Yeah. That uh, particularly, I mean, God, it, you should always do that, A. But, but B, with the Me Too movement, there's been so many people who haven't done that. I've known so many people who have been hurt, molested by by people who are uh, clerics, by, by ministers yeah. of, wow. or priests or something. And not just Me Too movement, the, you know, the no. sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church as well. Exactly. And, and I think it's as bad, if not worse, than in Protestant churches, but we just don't have an overarching structure in order to hold people accountable i it's interesting so in thinking about that so so malva goes to blackmail him basically saying he's spending too much time with amy mccallum and that she malva is lying but says she saw them kissing and so she's holding that kind of over his head and i'm thinking about the whole mike pence thing about not having dinner with a woman that's not your wife (laughs) Yeah. And how that was just, that's so outrageous in some ways, you yeah. know, in, in, in this particular culture. But I was taught as a minister and I remember my male colleagues talking about, you don't be alone with somebody, especially somebody of the opposite sex, that you always make sure the door is open, that you always, you know, you don't go out and, and do something with someone of the opposite sex could that could be misconstrued as inappropriate behavior so you always keep yourself above reproach which is really hard to do if it's you're really supposed to be to the person that they're confiding in if Absolutely. they've got an important secret or an important sensitive issue you can't just leave the door open no, as no. you're talking to someone. Or what happens if you, you know, in a mixed gender church staff situation? Because, I mean, I grew up with all the pastors were male. But, you know, as things have changed, thank God, over the years, and there are women pastors as well. So do you not s- sit alone with your female colleague if you're a male pastor? That's ridiculous. Of course you do. It is, yes. And I, I think this is just a, there will always be Malvas out in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and but the the amount of Malvas that are out in the world cannot prevent you from doing the ministry that you need to do. No, people always come back with the once someone is accused of being inappropriate or mm-hmm. of, of rape or of any type of sexual misconduct, mm-hmm. or even just always, abuse of power. Um, yes, not, abuse of yeah, power. it doesn't necessarily have to be sex, but still, yeah. The, the vast majority of those accusations are true. Yeah. The vast majority of those accusations are true. There are only what, like, I think they did the, they did some math and it's like 2% are the Malvas of this yeah. world. Malva yeah. makes really great drama in the book. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the truth of it is the vast mm. majority of the work that, that Roger Mack does is alone mm. with people. Yeah. He, he does this he confides with Claire alone all the time. Nobody thinks anything's mm-hmm. going on there. Yeah. I think that we give more credence to the Malvas of the world because when they do that, they, they really do damage. Um, they do they serious do. damage, not just to the person that they're blackmailing or the person that they're accusing falsely, mm-hmm. but they're doing mm-hmm. damage to any other person who has been rightfully, 
who rightfully accuses their abuser. Really, <laughs> that kind of thing ticks me off so much. Did you ever read the play The Children's Hour by Lillian Hellman? No. Oh, great, great play written in the early 20th century. It is about a child who accuses her female teacher of having a relationship with another female teacher, and she is a Malva. Hmm. And it's so it's not even people of the opposite sex, it's, it's two women in the same room together. Mm-hmm. And they're alone, and she accuses them of having a sexual relationship. And so it's, it's, it's a brutal play. It's vicious. It's horrible. And mm. whether they believe her or don't believe her, she's a child. It's, it's very much along this line. But it does a lot of damage to, again, it's great drama, but it mm-hmm. does a lot of damage to the truth of the matter, which is the vast majority of people who bring allegations of abuse against somebody are telling the truth. Mm. Yeah. So, but at the same time, to be responsible, knowing that, yes, you have to take every allegation seriously. Yes, and you and, have to and take run the risk that it is gonna cause damage. Because what's the what's the other option to not believe people when they come along and tell you something? So there are so many aspects of being called to a minister that have risk attached to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not just we're going across the sea to the, you know, unsaved pagan who might <laughs> chop us up into bits, you know. It's, it's not that. The real risk is vulnerability. Hmm. The real risk is being available for people who may take that wrong. The real risk is being in community. I think always hmm. community is the biggest risk we take with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, that that's a hard that's a hard lesson for Roger to learn. And I don't know that he got that in schooling when he was taking the classes to become a Presbyterian minister. Well, I would say we might talk about it in seminary, but you don't really learn it until it actually happens to you. Correct. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think about the fact that when Roger finally admits that he wants to be a minister, that he talks to Jamie about it first? I don't know, except that Jamie's leader of the clan, right? Yeah, this is in a Breath of Snow and Ashes where he does this. He says, the preaching, I, I suppose I'll manage, but it's the other things I must be insane, he says to himself. It's the burying and the christening, and maybe it's just being able to help, even if it's only listening and praying. And Jamie recognizes it, and he understands, and he says, you want to take care of him. And, yeah. and Roger's like... I don't want to. It's the last thing I thought of. And me growing up in a minister's house, he knows kind of, you know, what it's like to be that. But somebody has to do it. And I think it's it needs to be me. He does that before he talks to Bree, though. He does. He talks to Jamie about it before he talks to Bree. I find that to be really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. That I, I would expect him to talk to Bree first. Mm. But I, I can also see him definitely being one of the first to talk to Jamie since Jamie takes care of the clan and this is a need that the clan would have him being a minister well, ja- and, yeah. and and Jamie would have to give his blessing so this is if he were to be a minister and be a minister to this clan Jamie yeah. would have to okay this or he would become a minister elsewhere and have to take Bree away but Jamie does say have you talked to your wife about this you know like he so he's <laughs> and <laughs> and, Ro- and Roger was like well, no, and so Jamie asks him why, and and Roger's like, because I think she'll think I'm a coward, because I guess he, you know, in this 
So this is after they've gone and rescued Claire from the kidnapping. And Roger has fairly become fairly clear that he doesn't want to be a soldier, that taking men's lives is not something that he can do yeah. easily. Part of me wonders if he think thinks that Bree will think it's cowardly because it's... There is a whole thing. We, we should do a whole episode around masculinity. I think so, too. Because I think that there... There is this whole thing about Roger's, like, (laughs) it would be great, yeah. This whole thing about Roger, if he's not out felling trees and hunting and and building houses and being a soldier, then he's not a real man. And I think he thinks that Bree somehow feels that possibly, too, because she does some of those things better than he does. (laughs) She does a lot of those things better than he does. She does a lot of those things better than he does. Well, and Um, his father dies as a soldier, right? Yeah, yeah. Or supposedly dies mm. as a soldier. His father mm. is a soldier in World War Two, And him not wanting to be a soldier in arguably an incredibly important war has to be a blow to his own ego. Maybe he's wondering whether or not he's a coward. Yeah. Yeah, I think he does have that conversation with himself. Yeah, I just, I kind of was intrigued by that. That when he finally admits it, when he finally wants to tell somebody, he talks to Jamie first. Maybe he's hoping for Jamie to okay it so that he can mm. take that to Bree and say that mm. I'm not being a coward. I don't I I don't I don't know. That's a that's yeah. a really good question. So I'm wondering, A, what do our listeners have to say about this? Yeah. Because I'm a bit stumped. Yeah. And I'm wondering, B, Diana, if you could have yeah. some kind of conversation <laughs> with us and enlighten us a little bit on this, we would very much appreciate that. I would love to have a chat with her just about Roger's role in the story. You know, as a was there anything with him as a narrative device? Is that one of the reasons why she wrote him as being so empathetic and feeling? And because it gives her another another way to explore a story, or is he a character like Claire was a character and just kind of goes along and just declared himself to her, and she just wrote him as as he was? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Diana, get in touch with us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our email Related, and everything's yeah. at the end of this <laughs> at the end of this episode. Yes, please, please. <laughs> but related to that too, okay. So maybe this plays another role. Is also in a breath of snow and ashes. Roger is acts as Jamie's priest. So after a battle, kind of close to the end, Roger goes to check if Jamie's okay because he, Jamie's been visited by sort of the ghosts of Culloden over the last sort of chapter or two. Yeah. And and the the point, well, the you know the text goes, Roger Mack nodded and turned and walked away, and then suddenly he turned back, laid his hand once more on Jamie's arm, and very quietly said, "Hey, go take And then he turned and walked away and resolutely to tent in the dying and the blessing of the dead. So he absolves Jamie of whatever sins Jamie might have committed in right. the battle. And so if there if there is a that Jamie is is his confessor and he is Jamie's is it has it come to that in some way? I you know, so every minister needs to have a confessor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that could be that as well. I'm just struck by Mm. And and you've done this too, having mm. to minister to family members. Yeah, the responsibility a mm-hmm. that that entails, and and b the hu- humility it takes to do mm. that is required. I you know I'm I'm struck. That's the first thing that strikes me about that is 
you know, Jamie is there for a blessing. Jamie's there to do this, and he gives mm-hmm. it to him. But he yeah. gives it to him in a way he's not expecting, and it's it's fantastic that yeah. Roger recognizes that in A in himself, mm-hmm. and Jamie recognizes it in Roger. Yeah. yeah. And I think it all kind of, that, that relationship changed in the Fiery Cross after Jamie's bitten by the snake, and they have yeah. this really intense conversation with one another, and their relationship takes on a different dimension after that. And Jamie kind of confesses a bit to Roger at that point, particular time as well so i wonder if that's kind of where it starts but they he knows all the things jamie's done yeah 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 i mean we've spent so much time on kind of books one through six but after he goes back through the stones he really struggles with this call to ministry in the 20th century and begins to sort of question is he called to ministry in the 18th but not in the 20th what exactly does that call look like for him now that he's he's gone back I also think he struggles with his belief system as yeah. well from yeah. the 18th century to the 20th century. So yeah. back in the 18th century, mm-hmm. as he's taking and accepting, he was ready to accept the ordination. Yeah. But never every time he goes to get ordained, something happens and right. he, it doesn't It doesn't happen. So he never actually officially gets ordained. But a, a part of that ordination is he has to say that he mm-hmm. believes in the pre-ordination of all souls, the predestination yep. of all souls, yep. which is a strong, so determinism mm-hmm. and free will is a very mm-hmm. strong theme in all of the books because mm-hmm. of the time travel issue. Mm-hmm. And so Roger has to say, and he says in the later books after he's come back to the 20th mm-hmm. century, I was willing to go forward and say that I believed in preordination. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back to the 20th century mm-hmm. and he can't say that anymore yeah he, he can't say what it was all for he can't say yeah. that he believes because something changed yeah. something changes and so he, not everything is necessarily preordained not mm-hmm. everything is and let me just you know draw very specific because we'll talk about this when we talk about the time travel episode there's mm-hmm. a difference in the term predestination and the term determinism determinism mm-hmm. means all things are going to happen at all times and everything is set in stone predestination mm-hmm. is means there are certain souls that are predestined for heaven and mm-hmm. then double predestination means there are also certain souls predestined for hell and yep. so you're born and it's already predestined that way. And yep. in the Presbyterian tradition, God is highly sovereign. Mm-hmm. The sovereignty of God is over all things. Mm-hmm. And God's sovereignty means that everything is preordained, including souls. So there is mm-hmm. predestination. And so Roger Roger is now like really questioning all of the things that mm-hmm. have to do with his faith. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I find it, okay, so let's go back to what I was saying earlier about his his calling coming from the community. Mm-hmm. He's lost mm-hmm. his community. He has, yeah. Yeah, part of me wonders if his calling is to a particular place and to a particular people. And then once that, that changes, whether or not that calling is still there. Um, I think that's totally valid. I think that happens to people that has happened to me. That, that happens to all of us all the time. Otherwise, ministers, A, wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, go back and forth between, between parishes. Mm-hmm. But, but it, it, there are some places in my life that I was called to do a specific thing. And I knew I was called to do that specific thing. And mm-hmm. then there are other times in my life I, 
it it ran its course and it was done. Or Mm -hmm. the, as my husband likes to say, all of the characters in my sitcom have changed. (laughs) (laughs) The sitcom that is my life, (laughs) they've all changed. And so my character also has changed in the sitcom because I am now in a new, a new place and a new space. Yeah. And I think Roger is too. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think the con- the connection between land and people is different yeah. between the 18th century and the 20th century. I think that affects faith, affects how people practice religion. In the 20th century, it seems to become more of a consumption of religion than than a practice in some ways. It's not a life and death thing for a lot of people now yeah. that it was then. Not to say that it isn't now in some ways, but 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 it truly was everything was God ordained because you didn't understand vaccinations. You didn't, you know, like you just left everything right. up to God and it was just kind of that was the way things work. But yeah, I do think that there's something that hasn't been articulated, but but as he struggles with his call is about this place being Fraser's Ridge. 18th century and these people than than just kind of a ministry in general and it doesn't matter which church I serve because this is just what I'm called to do I, I do think that there's a specificity to to his calling related to time place yeah land. and he doesn't go back to history either that's important no. to note he no he doesn't the, the, he, the only thing he has as a common thread is Brie he stays mm-hmm. with her he mm-hmm. he he works with his family. He's got his two children. And I'll be interested to see when Bees comes out next year. Or this mm-hmm. year. This year. It comes out this, this year, year. This year. This year. Yay! <laughs> when Bees comes out this year and at the end of the eighth book, Roger and Bree are coming back to Fraser's Ridge. Is he finally going to get ordained? Is he finally yes. going to? Yeah. Or, I, I or has that changed for him now? It's something that has just occurred to me as we're talking about this. So... Bree in A Breath of Snow and Ashes is um, being held by Bonnet, I think, and is remembering a conversation that she has with Roger. And Roger says, do you not think that any time traveler must be a bit of a theologian? And, <laughs> and she says he must be right, you know, that no one would have traveled through the stones could help asking why me and who would answer that question if not for God. You know, he goes back in the 20th century and he starts writing this kind of how time travel works um, and starts making this kind of the moral obligations of a time traveler kind of thing. Trying to make sense of what happens. Trying to make sense of what happens. Does Roger become a theologian? I think that's what ultimately happens to him right now. I mean, he is... He so he's always kind of been that theologian, right? Yes, yeah. He he couldn't understand his connection with Brie, but he mm-hmm. follows her everywhere. It is mm-hmm. being a theologian is painfully romantic, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not the romance that you think of, but mm. it, it is somewhat in at least in my experience, and it may be somebody else's experience of systematic theology that is not romantic at all. But <laughs> but at least in my experience, theology tends to have that quality mm-hmm. of of searching for something more yeah. beautiful, more good, more ethical, more and and, and we look for Full that in this yeah. personhood of God, right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that that is the to me, I think him being a historian, him mm-hmm. being called to this ministry, him having this mm-hmm. empathetic ro- role leads him to the road of 
trying to make sense of it all mm-hmm. and being an ethicist in this, an mm-hmm. ethical theologian in this. I think that that's mm-hmm. a fantastic Jamie, you're brilliant. That's well, I'm, I'm just, you know, being the the self-reflective person that I am in the sense of going, <laughs> oh, I see myself in him. <laughs> so, yeah, the, I, it does. And I trained as a historian. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. I love history. <laughs> um, I, I did not train as a historian. I love history, though. Yeah. My bachelor's is in history. So, yeah. I think maybe that's where we've got with Roger. But, you know, yeah. I'm wondering if he's going to continue that book. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, surely. Yeah. Surely you will. I hope so. I mean, I hope so. With, Somebody with needs quill. to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. paper that's too expensive. How is he going to do that? <laughs> I don't know. I'd get Bree to make him some more paper. He'll be all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I think that's probably a good place to end. So Roger as the theologian. Um, yes. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> ending. Roger is one of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and Go, Richard Rankin. Roger. That's why we yeah, and Richard Rankin, if, if you want to be a part of this conversation at any point. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes, Rick. <laughs> join us anytime. You are more than welcome. We would love to have you for that masculinity conversation we just mentioned. Um, oh, serious. Yes. Yeah, because Wouldn't I don't be think cool? it's fair for you and I to judge No, to be talking about masculinity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we need a male Outlander fan out there who might be willing to talk about that. So let us know. Please, please. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. We've got a special Mm -hmm. treat next time. We just want to put out another big thank you to all of the supporters for, Mm -hmm. as we're moving into 2019. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the support in 2018. We are so grateful. You guys are amazing. And uh, we look for your support in 2019. So thank you Mm -hmm. so much and a happy, happy, happy to everyone. Great. We'll see you next time. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. We would really appreciate it if you'd review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps people to find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us financially. Just click the support us at outlandersoul.com. There are lots of ways to donate. Every little bit helps. Also, we'd love to hear your questions, thoughts, and ideas because part of the work that we're doing is gathering data on how fans interact with and value Outlander in their lives. So we're really interested in what you have to say. And we know Outlander fans have a lot to say. So please send us your thoughts through our website, email, voice memos, or social media, and follow the links on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. You can also contact us by email at outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com or via our website, www.outlandersoul.com. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you again in two weeks. See you later. See ya.